Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Kelly. In today's episode, Tate Ishka in conversation with Readings' own Julia Jackson. I'd wager the overwhelming majority of books covered on this podcast are new releases, fresh out into the world. And while Ishka's book, Copywronged Copywriter, has just been published by Scribe, I've actually had a copy of my own for going on six years. How could this be? Well, the success of Ishka's book, which was first released as a self-published title in 2016, has prompted the aforementioned publisher to step in and bring the book to a wider audience this year. In this interview, Ishka and Jackson discuss not only the book itself, but the practicalities of self-publishing books today. He's the host of the discussion, recorded live at Readings Carlton, Bernard Calio. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming along to Readings Bookshop. On behalf of Readings and the publisher, or the latest publisher, the new publisher, the new publisher uh, of uh, uh, Copy Wronged, a copywriter. Uh, and so we are celebrating this new publishing life of the book tonight. Everybody say hooray. Hooray! Um, my name's Bernard and I'm a bookseller here and a, uh, a, a, an events wrangler, sometime events wrangler. And so, yeah, very warm uh, welcome to you. So I'd like to say that, of course, we are celebrating this event tonight. We are uh, uh, talking about these questions of how to write and how to write rightly uh, on Aboriginal country. This is Aboriginal land. It always has been. It always will be. We are on the country first spoken and, and, and imagined in the Bunwarang and Woiwarang language. Uh, and we are overjoyed that we are here and this country is beautiful country and is being built all the time and may we all travel together and make it a, a, a shared place to be for, for, for all peoples. Um, so let me introduce our, our, our stars for tonight. Tate Iskia. Yes! Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, oh, that wasn't applause. Um, is a designer and a, and a content sculptor. Do you like that? That's all right. Uh, uh, who's been working for 10 years at Today. A bit more now, maybe. Ten, a bit less. <laughs> uh, today, which is a strategic design consultancy place. And as I was saying before, we're celebrating this re-release, republication, because it was first released in 2016. And to talk to Tate, we have the fearless... Uh, uh, assistant Manager of Readings, um, Julia Jackson, who I work for and is a, a mind almost beyond comprehension. Has She's been doing lots of stuff here at Readings for... She's been the Assistant Manager for five years, but she's been selling books, Tate, for 20 years. Uh, but she is also an art historian and a provenance researcher. Let's welcome our people. Hooray! <laughs> Thank you, Bernard, for that really wonderful introduction and really necessary welcome to country. Um, I want to personally thank you all for coming here tonight. Uh, I'm not sure whether you're on a meet-cute, but we're very flattered slash honoured that you're here on Valentine's Day to spend this time talking about um, words and self-publishing and the experience of somebody who is um, made a success of self-publishing, I think. Uh, we're going to record tonight's event not only for posterity, but I think that people in the audience and listeners, as we'll post this to our readings social media, will find this really very valuable. Um, I've been at a bookseller for 20 years, but I've been at readings for, this is my 16th year. Uh, a few different hats I've worn over that time 
One of them most recently has been to take on the role of consignment buyer, which is the liaison point between self-published authors and independent publishers and in order to get their books in store. Um, so I took on that role here just after we uh, renovated this shop in 2018. And at that stage, we'd been stocking Tate's book since 2016, since it was published. Um, we were pretty astonished at how frequently we had to reorder it. I feel like I was asking Tate every month or so, oh, can I have another 10 copies? Or can I have another 20 copies? Uh, it simply flew off the shelves and remained one of our best-selling consignment titles. Um, if you follow Tate on LinkedIn, you'll know from a recent post his book sold over 4,000 copies in 23 countries and was into its sixth printing when it was picked up by Scribe. Yes, big round of applause. That is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, so it was picked up recently by Scribe, who's our local independent publisher. Uh, there are lots of books in the world that don't even sell out of a first print run that are trade published. So over 4,000 copies for a self-published book is no small feat. So that's fantastic. Um, even fewer self-published books get picked up by trade publishers as well. Um, and this new edition, seeing it published, is really very special. Tate, I'd like to ask you a few questions about your experience with publishing this book. Can I start with asking you, why did you decide to write this book? Thanks, Julia. The reason I decided to write the book was that I was uh, freelancing in a small studio at the time, sitting next to a friend of mine who had a, a different business. Her business was to get briefs in from small businesses who needed to make websites. And she had on her books a whole bunch of design studios and a whole bunch of sort of web development studios. She turned to me one day and said, do you have like a one pager with some advice for small businesses to write their own copy? And I thought, no, <laughs> I don't have one. I should make one. And it turned into a book. So that was the genesis of it was, um, you know, this friend I was sitting next to. And so, yeah, it was very specifically a book for small businesses looking to write their own copy. I think, too, the other thing that was driving me at the time was, as Jess, my friend, was explaining to me, the small businesses were paying, you know, $2,000 to the designer, $2,000 to the developer, and that was a lot of money for them. And just to think, you know, really they should be paying me to write their copy. <laughs> They're not going to, you know, pay for that. So... Maybe my other way of getting some money out of it would be to publish a book. <laughs> that, look, that's really good. And I think that, you know, it's a fairly easy process, I suppose, as well. And for businesses to be able to get good at it and save themselves some money through using a really practical guide, that's fantastic. Did you do much research when you first wrote it and had it printed? Did you do any research in bookstores to see what else was out there? that was similar or comparable? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, the straight answer is no. I went to no bookstores. <laughs> but I had read <laughs> I had read sort of similar books. I don't know. It was maybe a bit of a hunch too. I felt like – and it was something that I kind of threw myself into, not really knowing what the hell I was doing. So it wasn't like a serious pursuit until I kind of had something. Mm -hmm. And by that point I thought – Gee, I better publish it. So, yeah, I mean, look, 
the right answer would be, of course, I did a full landscape review. <laughs> but I didn't. Um, one of the things you have produced along with the book is, and we used to have these slipped into the copies that Tate supplied to us directly, is this bookmark. And um, points two through to four say one thing, well, keep it short and find your voice. I think you've done that really well with this yeah. book in smashing through it a couple of times since I've, I've had it for a few years now. Um, you, you do really get to the point and cut to the chase and I think that's one of the things that's made this book quite successful in because it's short, it's to the point, it's really easy and approachable to a new person, particularly somebody who doesn't have a lot of time on their hands in a small business or a sole trader to be able to pick up, learn the skills needed and then deploy them. Would yeah, you say that's thank you. Funny? And yeah, that's what a lot of people say is just the concision. I think too it's interesting that the book industry, uh, people often said to me this to me when at the beginning, you know, someone writes a, a popular article mm. on a news site and then they turn it into a whole book when really it could have just been an article. And, you know... Patrick Radden Keefe did that <laughs> with Empire of Truth sure. and <laughs> Empire of Pain. you got a few examples. I mean, but it always plagued me a little bit that I thought it's 10,000 words, maybe it's too short. But then everyone says that that's the best thing about it. So, nah, you know. it's perfect. Yeah, it really is. Oh, good. Um, so, coming from somebody, like, as a consignment buyer, I come across with a lot of people who don't really understand the process of getting a book into a store very well. And so, there's this misconception that once you have a book published and you have an online platform, be it a social media platform or a, a retail platform like Booktopia or something, that once you've got it done well there, that if you get into a bookstore, it'll translate to sales. That doesn't always happen. Copywrong is a clear exception to this, but there's also quite a lot of legwork to it. Did you understand just how much work you'd have ahead of you in self-publishing this book and no. have to maintain? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. I thought I could just set up a store online and sell them all online. I think that's what I thought. And to be honest, like, I didn't think that it would be that successful. I just thought some people in the sort of UX design industries would be interested. Um, and it surprised me that it had sort of a, a broader audience. But I don't know, Julie, I'm interested in your perspective on this. Like, like what was it about the book that sold well in this store and because to me as well it was a slow burn like it didn't sell like incredibly well out of the start it was five books at a time and then it was 10 books and then it was 20 books and then it was 70 books or whatever uh i again it's the succinctness the design it says and does what it's supposed to do in a book and that's great um the people who were buying the book were, you know, people who were interested in building their own social media profile, writing their own copy for an Instagram platform or a, or a small business that they were starting, just small ventures basically. And we started to notice that the sales would climb and that, you know, I would if I, I needed to pester you in more infrequently if I just ordered more copies and then so shared them around to our other stores. And what, what we... Like, we sell and still do sell the vast 
majority from Carlton, but we also have quite good sales from the Emporium and the State Library, and we've sent some copies over to Hawthorne, and they've done quite well over there as well. So it's a mix of the right book, it finds an audience immediately, which is one of the things that we look for with self-published books, is like, will it find its audience? And yes, this book does find its audience and very quickly. When it starts to sell and sell and sell in a consignment sort of setting, it means that you then can continue to support that author, support that book, support the community who wants the book. It was also helped a little bit by, by my colleague Nico with his wonderful shelf talker. Should have gotten struck through the author of this book to write this review, creative, concise and never condescending approaches to copywriting. So having a shelf talker has also helped it, especially with Nico's little sort of copywriting editing quirk to it. People picked up on that and they, they started to buy it and they responded to it. Yeah. I definitely um, put a lot of effort into designing the book, thought a lot about the cover. And I think that's, those are two things. I worked with a designer, a friend of mine, Tristan, uh, who was working at uh, Black Ink. And so he had a lot of examples of other books. And, you know, the book doesn't look out of place on the shelves, whereas, like, a lot of self-published books can kind of look a little bit tacky because they've been printed by some sort of on-demand printer. So that was important to me that it felt like a, a book that you'd, you'd get from Penguin or something. And then with the cover, my background is in advertising and I sort of always really felt like the cover was an ad. And so, yeah, it says what it does on the cover, yeah. which is, you yeah. know, so I think, you know, with a shelf talker sitting out on the front, you know, with its cover facing out, it's quite a good ad for the Yeah, book. yeah absolutely. Yeah. And the book is a really nice object and it photographs well when you have it in a, like a visual merchandising thing. I mean, I looked at your Instagram earlier for this book and, you know, it's playing on, on the colour pink, which is not generally a colour that's picked out for books in that particular section behind us. That was a really good, maybe conscious choice, I think. A good thing with this book, again, is it was helped along by the design and helped along by the fact that, yes, it does what it says it does. The cover design really is great in that it does work like a little billboard, as you said, and, yeah, it's really successful because of that. I would like to know... So I can name five self-published books that have made the transition from being books on consignment, very humble little titles in a bookstore, to being picked up by publishers. Two of them are Ice Station by Matthew Riley and the second one is Grimish by Michael Winkler. Um, he was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin last year and his book's now just about to go into the US, just like yours. So making that transition isn't always straightforward from being self-published into a published setting. How did you find that process? And because you've now gone from full control over everything from sales, logistics, distribution, dealing with invoices and payments and the ATO's small business network. Now you have that support of a publisher behind you. What does that mean for you? Oh, it's huge. That's... Um I don't have to do any of that stuff anymore. Thank God. You can relax on the couch. I can, yeah, that's right. I can do more relaxing on the couch. I mean, the process has been amazing. And, I, like, I have to say I have to thank you, Julia, for this because you're the one who 
who got me into Scribe. You were the one who said, we we're going to take, we'll take this down to Henriette Scribe and, and have a chat. So a lot of the hard work was done for me. This is a book, full disclosure, <laughs> this is a book that we really believed in here. It, because of the this track record with its sales and the fact that it was a really consistent, strong seller, I mean, it, it felt like it needed to be published and once you were starting to chat to me about moving the existing stock into a distributor first and foremost and whether or not we could help with that or who who I might know. You know, it never hurts to ask these questions of who you know, no matter how how well or how little you know the person. We'd only had an ex- email exchange going before we had had this conversation. And this is like the only second time that I've met you in person, like, but one of the things that booksellers and bricks and mortar stores can really champion self-published books. If we think they're fantastic, we'll shout down heaven and earth to let people know that this is a great book because we value our community, we value the authors and we value, you know, the process of reading and, and book selling is basically all about helping people find their book and helping self-published books in particular find their person and that's really important and so that's one of the reasons why I was really quite happy to jump in and help in that yeah Yeah, well thank you (laughs) what's next I mean um, I think what this means for me is that I can stop being a bookseller because I think that was the thing that I didn't realize I was getting into is that I was actually starting a bookselling business and I had one title (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's hard when you work full time, you have a family, you're trying to find balance in your life and it's, yeah, and I think that's again something that isn't really well understood. If you publish your own book, you get it in a bookstore, okay, that means you can take your pedal, foot off the pedal. Absolutely not. It's such hard graft and it's a relief now, I suppose, for you not to necessarily have to do all that legwork. Yeah, huge relief. And But I think what the transition now means that it's not about selling lots of books. I mean, I'd like to, but it's about building a platform to have a new conversation and find a new audience and talk to people about writing and meaning and language in, in new forms. So, so, yeah, I'm really interested in now finding like a broader audience beyond what it's found and, yeah, like standing on the shoulders of the book. So, because you've already sold into 23 countries already, who who are the people who've been buying your books so far? And how are you and Scribe in particular going to market the book to people who aren't part of that existing audience? How are you going to find new people for the book? Okay, yeah, it's a good question. So, a lot of that 4,000 are in Australia. Probably half to two-thirds are in Australia. Then of the remaining bit, that's where the 23 countries come in, the majority of that is the US and the UK. And then you've got the long tail of like 21 other countries. There was like quite a few from Germany and some of those Scandinavian countries. And I had a hunch that people were interested in it for its ability to help them with the English language a little bit which is really interesting to me. I think too that I always marketed it and talked about it to design studios, emerging copywriters and small businesses. 
but I'm really interested in the idea that it has a much broader audience and the idea that maybe all people could find ways to communicate better and have more influence in their lives through writing by thinking more like a copywriter. And I have a feeling that that's what's happening in readings a little bit as people are seeing it on the shelf and not going, I was looking for a book about copywriting or I run my own small business and I, you know, this is for me. They're thinking, I kind of want to get better at writing. So that's the plan. And that's what I've been attempting to do in this last little phase is talk more about that. Talk more about the applicability of copywriting to, to any aspect of writing. It's really in everything, isn't it? It's literally the ability to communicate in written form, which is all of aspects of our life, whether it's social or, or, or work-based or whatever, really. Yeah, totally. And I feel like even reflecting on how I learned to write in school, there were two main strands of it. There was essay writing, um, which was it's very academic and, you know, the, the goal being to have a PhD and a, or a master's thesis or something. Um, and then there's creative writing, which is, like, very freeform. Um, but writing, you know, succinctly and influentially in order to help people, like, know what to do and take some action, which is a lot of the writing that people need to do professionally, there's no real, like, uh, you know, thinking about that or talking about that. Um, and I was lucky enough to learn some of those techniques when I studied at university and did a communications degree. Um, but not everyone gets that. And I think that's where, you know, something like this could be quite powerful. Maintaining your voice in that book, it, like it really, that message to me resonates quite a lot because I come from an academic background and I I have a tendency to be over flowery or, or think too formally about the words that I'm writing, I know that if I just pair it back to a message and keeping it fairly succinct and concise but maintain some sort of voice and be able to compel people to do things, then that's that's good. So write with an action, write actively, I suppose. Yeah, that's important. Write actively. You know what, actually, I mean, this is something I mentioned in the book. I'm just something that, uh, as an aside that I'm interested in, I'm sure everyone is interested in. Everyone... It, in my time as a copywriter, often um, you get feedback to say, could you write it in the active voice? And I look at it and I know the active voice and I'm, and I'm thinking this is in the active voice. Uh, what are you talking about? And More people active. are... Yeah, that's right. People are confusing the active voice, which is really just about putting a subject before an object. Uh, they're confusing that with like a more direct tone. And in the book, I sort of explain that there are four types of sentences. There's a declarative sentence, which just states a fact. And there's an imperative sentence, which asks someone to do something. And the imperative is the active voice. Like, that's what action is, is to ask, ask for something. Yeah, to write more actively is to use the imperative. And sometimes you can use the passive voice to write actively. I mean, that's good too. possible. I think we might think about wrapping it up because we're basically just, just after seven o'clock. Thanks, everyone, for coming. This has been a really fun little chat. Thanks, Tate. All the best for the book. And look, the sky's the limit really now. It's great. Thanks, Julia. And thanks for believing in the book yeah. and getting me here. This is... Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you, readings. Copy wrong. To Copywriter is available via all reading stores and at our website, 
where you can also stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast. You'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. And you can also sign up to eNews, or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of the show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wollongong people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay my owner's respects to elders past, present, and to come. Thank you.